This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Martin McDonough. You're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Your son told me that you've got lots of hair under your arms, three times more than I do, and that you've got a very hairy back and a very hairy belly. I probably do have a little more hair than you do because I'm older than you. Okay, pop quiz, Josh. That clip is from which of the following new releases that we'll be giving some time to on this week's show? Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck? The Killing of a Sacred Deer from the talented Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, or Agnes Varda's Faces, Places. Well, you're leaving out the subtitle, Faces, Places, Armpits. (laughs) I did leave that out. Kind of gives it away. Yeah, it does. And that was a bad question anyway, because you're the only one of us who can answer it. You saw all three of those movies, and that was Colin Farrell in the clip from The Killing of a Sacred Deer, a psychological horror film that reunites Farrell with the director of The Lobster. We'll get Josh's thoughts on Deer and the latest from Carol and Far From Heaven director Todd Haynes, plus a conversation about the surprise new film from 89-year-old French New Wave pioneer Agnes Varda. All of that and more ahead on Film Spotting. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com The leaves are falling from the trees. It's getting colder. We are in fall, Josh, and that means that there are so many good movies out there. So few of them, unfortunately, playing out near where we live. And just with a bunch of scheduling conflicts this weekend, I am deferring Employee of the Week honors to you. You got to both Wonderstruck and Killing of a Sacred Deer. I did. Thank you. Do I get an extra film spotting T-shirt? You might. I've got the gray, so, you know, maybe the royal blue. Maybe the royal blue, maybe the black. We'll see. Depends how cogent your thoughts are this week. We will get to those thoughts later in the show. Plus, we will share results from the latest film spotting deathmatch, a very one-sided affair. First, though, director Agnes Varda made her first film in 1955. She hadn't made a new one since 2008. But then we did a Varda marathon earlier this year, Adam, and boom. The 89-year-old shows up with a new film, a collaboration with the French photographer, J.R. You're welcome. Moi, j'ai 33 ans. Et toi, je dirais plutôt que tu as 88 printemps. Le truc rigolo, c'est qu'on va faire un film ensemble. Bah ouais, c'est ça le point de départ. Tu sais, c'est avec ce camion que je pars partout dans le monde. T'es partante Je suis toujours partante si on va vers des paysages simples, vers des villages. 
Indeed, Adam, the documentary Faces Places is a collaborative project with both Agnes Varda and French photographer J.R., who is decades her junior, credited as co-directors. We follow them as they travel to various villages throughout France, creating public art projects based on J.R.'s large format photography. Basically, they make photographic portraits of the locals, blow them up to be between 12 and 20 feet tall, and then paste them on a prominent wall in a public space. We do see a wide variety of faces and places as a result, including a group image of chemical plant workers plastered across the concrete wall of the property. Asked what he thinks of it, one of those workers observes, art is supposed to surprise us, no? How did faces, places surprise you, Adam? Did one of the installations we see in the film stand out more than the others? Did you have a favorite? Yeah, I did. That's a great question. In a movie filled with really poignant lines, that line about art surprising us was one that stood out for me. And in a movie filled with poignant moments generated by art and responses to art, that's really the whole film, there's one that's absolutely a most moving moment contender for me that we may get to, if not on this show, we'll get to when we do that end of year category as we often do. But the one that surprised me the most was the last one. It takes place, maybe fittingly, Josh, at La Havre. Fitting because we know Varda really only because of our recent, and I say recent, it was in the past year that we did a six-movie Varda marathon and feel like we've got some familiarity with her work. We also did just prior to that, or maybe two before that, I think we did the contemporary Nordic cinema, and we talked about a Karasmaki film called La Havre that takes place in this port city of France, and J.R. and Varda go to the port, and they meet three dock workers. And Varda points out that there are no women around. There are no women working on this dock. And she has the idea then to focus on the dock workers' wives instead of the men. And we get this shot before really the art itself has been made that really just took my breath away in a movie that is filled with gorgeous photography. This one really struck me. It's where we get these three wives. They're all blondes. And what would you say? Maybe in their 40s? Early 40s? Maybe. Maybe even late 30s. They're all blonde and they're wearing black shirts and they're sitting in the grass. And behind them, there's taller grass just waving in the wind. And then behind that is crystal blue water. And in the water are these cargo ships. There's at least three of them that we see in the distance. So it's a very large, very deep frame. And these cargo ships all have these multicolored shipping containers on them. So this tableau of colors is really striking. And I was just taken with the beauty of the shot, first of all. I was then taken by how it reminded me of the end scene of one of the films from our Varda Marathon, One Sings, The Other Doesn't. I believe this was even your favorite moment when we did our Varda Marathon Awards, where we see various characters who have been part of this story, focusing on these two women and their decades-long friendship. And one of them is the daughter of the main characters, who's now, I think, maybe in her college years. And we get a voiceover that says they'd fought these two main women, to gain wholeness for women. Maybe their optimistic fight would help others, like Marie, the daughter who was becoming a woman. No one imagined it would be easier for her, but it might be simpler, cleaner. And I immediately thought of that, watching these three women just sitting in the grass, reflecting on their lives, telling their stories. Just the visual was enough to bring me back to that. But thematically, too, I like to think that women like Agnes Varda and the women who populate Varda's films, real and fictional, did maybe pave the way in some sense for these three women, if not made things easier for them, made things clearer. And there is a clarity and a humility and a joy in the way all three of these women talk about themselves and their careers and their husbands, too. And if that wasn't enough to kind of make my heart all flow over, you see the finished product then, the art project, the three women standing, gigantic, pasted onto this wall of these stacked shipping containers. And that too is beautiful. But this is where the surprise comes in or the surprises. That's just the beginning. It could end there. And yet Varda and JR decide to remove the container where their chests would be. So there's a hole there. And the women then can actually sit inside themselves where their heart would be. And that makes you melt a little bit more. And that's even then followed, Josh, by each woman's reaction to the experience. And I was almost expecting, and it would have been okay with me, honestly, if they were all having 
the same type of moment of exhilaration there. But of course, it's more nuanced than that. One is happy. She talks about the freedom she feels. Another is actually scared. She talks about being afraid. She's afraid of being alone, and she's afraid of heights. And she's stuck inside this container up in the air. Another one talks about being empowered. She says she feels like she dominates everything. And then we see the men all walk individually towards their wives, these goddesses almost, these shrines that have been built to them, and they're part of these shrines. And one husband explains to the camera the enormous pride they feel. And everything about that, that kind of crescendo of moments, just knocked me out. And that line, art should surprise us. Maybe one of the ways it most effectively surprises us, this movie really made me consider, is when it reveals, when it takes something that was already there in front of us the whole time and compels us to see it in a different way. These women didn't change because of Varda and JR and their project, but nobody in this community, I'd say including their husbands, will ever see them the same way again. And that's really powerful. And I think that's one of the things Varda and JR have in common is the ability to see the potential, the magic in the everyday, and then bring that out. That's maybe one of the things that brought them together on this project. That installation you just described is absolutely astonishing. Maybe maybe the one that has the most impact, certainly just In terms of sheer size, would you say there's maybe seven of these shipping containers piled on top of each other? Yeah, that sounds right. Gives people who haven't seen it an idea of how big this is. And yeah, I loved, I love that element of it too. I think, and here, you know, you don't know, and I don't want to give JR short shrift, but you do wonder if that installation. So this large format photography has been his milieu, Mm -hmm. what he's worked in previously. It's not something he they came up with together for this documentary. He's done other projects like this, Um, but you do wonder if Varda was not part of this. If he might have done something with just the dock workers. Maybe. And it was her idea to turn this and then double that, not only to include the wives, but to also include that element you just described of having them describe their feeling of being part of that project, mm-hmm. right? Because that seems very Varda, particularly with the documentaries that we did see, where it's getting to know the people who are her subjects and hearing their stories. And this is an extension of that. So, That sequence is an absolute melding, however it worked, whoever did what, of their interests and talents and abilities Mm -hmm. that create something beautiful. And I think we see this a number of times throughout the documentary. I don't think there's one of these installations that I thought, oh, that didn't quite work. I mean, even the goat they throw up on a barn is is whimsical and really speaks to something that they put a lot of thought to and a lot of care Mm -hmm. into and met the people and gotten their opinions, which formed – the ultimate art. I think that's another mm-hmm. thing they share in common is the willingness to incorporate their subjects in the process. 100%. So you can see why they got together on this project and why it turned into such a delightful film. I think the one I would probably choose as my yeah. favorite comes quite a bit earlier. It's this row of former miners' mm-hmm. homes that they come yeah, across. These were it. built for miners. I don't know how many decades ago, at this point, only one woman still lives on the block Mm -hmm. in one house. And so the whole block is set to be demolished when she moves out, is my impression. Well, what J.R. and Varda do is they find these historical photographs of the miners, blow them up, paste them across all of these houses. And then again, here's the twist. Here's the surprise. As you were describing, they take it to another direction, Mm -hmm. another level, and they decide that this one woman who still lives there, they're going to take her portrait, blow that up paste it on the front of her particular house. Right. And her response when she comes out of her front door, almost there's an echo here. I don't think she quite comes out of her image's heart, but it's something similar. She's coming out of her own image, Mm -hmm. turns around and looks back at her house and she's just, she's overcome. She's speechless. And there's not a need to, to put that experience precisely to words. We can infer why it's so moving to her, what they've given to her, what they've given to this village by, Mm -hmm. again, seeing something, seeing potential in something that had been regarded as so worthless it was to be taken down. Uh, It's just that one moment that the documentary captures that is really wonderful. And you're right about the composition and the cinematography Mm -hmm. of this film. It's another puzzle of it too, though, because 
I believe eight people are credited as cinematographer. Really? Yeah, because I was curious. You know, who's is is Jr. behind the camera here? Is it Varda? Are they taking turns? And there are eight credited cinematographers. I think there is a cohesive vision though yeah. throughout that, and I think it does speak to some of Varda's earlier compositions as well. Um, but it is curious to think about. You know, another question I had is how. Is this distinct from the documentaries we saw from Varda? You know, the Gleaners and I particularly Mm -hmm. and the Beaches of Agnes. And maybe it's that her role here is more as curator. And that speaks particularly to the sequences you were talking about where she kind of finds the people, Mm -hmm. finds the elements, brings them together and helps to create this this entirely new art experience using the talents that and the vision that that JR brings as well right and you can't help but compare it to some of those films as we did see them and discuss them and enjoyed them quite a bit fairly recently here on the show and I went back and looked at my notes from my beaches of agnes review which that film feels very much like a kindred spirit to this movie where she's elevated in her age and she's looking back on her life and her work at the same time she's discovering new people and integrating that into her art and some of the things I said there absolutely apply to this movie in terms of these are both films with a ton of artifice there's a lot of pretense about them and you can see where that comes through but they're both so heartwarming and life-affirming and I think Direct is one of the words I use to describe Beaches of Agnes, that when you overanalyze it, it almost weakens it in a way. And another thing I brought up was the commingling of time and space, which is really what cinema is. And that element is so much a part of this. And just the way both films are scattered and they seem very random and yet precise at the same time. By the time we get to the end of these installations, the way memory functions in both films, they're very much about making associations and then chasing down the ghosts from your past. So that's all a part of this film. And for me, what really hit me the most, Josh, I think, is just the way I've come to see film over the course of doing this show for 12 years and certainly in evaluating the work of filmmakers like Varda. It's really made me see how film and art in general reflects our humanity. And I would say it also reflects our inhumanity, but I think that that's inextricable from our humanity. So it's it's one and the same. There's great power for me in watching people confront that truth, literally almost, in seeing themselves reflected back to them. And that's why that moment when Janine, the last of these inhabitants on this street, emerges and sees herself and the layers of her emotional response, that's what I was alluding to earlier. That's the moment that just absolutely devastates me. And it's similar in some ways to the scene that we were discussing with the women and the cargo ships in that she so easily could have just decided to focus on the plight, that struggle, and it doesn't get much more real than the struggle of those coal miners that we see in those portraits that are painted on those different buildings and these dock workers. You could get so caught up in that, and yet she looks for that other angle to the story, and she gives them a voice as well. And Janine is just as much a fabric of that society, watching her father go out to those mines, then probably husbands or sons and other neighbors. That is just as much her experience as so many other people probably would have overlooked it, and she doesn't, and we get such a magical almost heartbreaking, but also heartwarming moment like the one where she sees herself on the outside of her own building. That factory, too, that you started off the discussion with, that's a place that we don't spend a lot of time there. But just in the few minutes we do see it and we hear from some of the workers, it's clearly defined by structure. There's a lot of talk of safety. There's rules that are in place that people follow. And it seems sort of a solitary experience, even with all those people working. Whimsy is not a word you would describe this factory. And this installation makes them confront their shared experience. How many times do you hear people after the pasted pictures go up? How many times do you hear people say something like, I just wish everyone could have been in it? Yeah. And it speaks to, I think, not just the fact that, oh, they kind of feel bad that someone got excluded and we're better than them or we're more special or whatever their hurt feelings. But it's about this lament that everyone else wasn't able to share the experience of doing it, but also seeing themselves Mm -hmm. within this group in this context. Those portraits on the factory walls will disappear. And we do see one of the ones they created, which is very moving 
that's what happens to it overnight. Yeah. And that obviously is a factor here. They are part of the elements. But whenever that does happen, whether it's the next day or a week or a month or a year from now, I think those workers are always going to remember how they felt looking at themselves, reaching towards each other, trying to connect with each other the way they framed those pictures. They'll feel that. I think they'll even see it every time they go by for the rest of their lives. You know, as you describe that, it makes me think that the temporal nature of this art that JR creates, the fact that the weather will strip it away, Mm -hmm. emphasizes the importance of the experience over the art. Yes. And that is brave Mm -hmm. and remarkable and in a strange way, liberating. You know, it's, it's... relieving the burden on this art to mean something for all time important. And it's really flipping it towards uh, emphasizing, again, the creation itself and the fact that they make this collaborative, the people who were a part of it. And I think as you describe that chemical plant, of all the installations we see, maybe that's the one that in the end might be the most transformative. Now, Mm -hmm. everyone is surprised when these pieces go up in other towns and I'm sure they will affect relationships and memories in certain ways. But yeah, you're right. Like that, that's the most disruptive one right? so. to, to the culture that it's infiltrating, mm-hmm. even though there's, there's no real pushback, you know, it, it strikes me as maybe, I, I don't know where I'm getting this from, but my perception is this would go very differently at an American chemical. I plant, thought of that as right? well. And, it, and it's almost like in that worker that was quoted at the beginning, uh, he's not, scared by the art. He welcomes it. And and his response is, even if he doesn't understand it, you can tell he's a little confused. Mm -hmm. But his response isn't to say, what's it doing here anyway? It's to say, well, I guess art's supposed to surprise us. You know, there's a certain welcomeness to the possibility that I think maybe is particular to France. But I don't know. I definitely felt that, Josh, not just with the plant, but almost every... Every place they go. Place they went. Honestly, whether it was a goat farm or whether it was just a little village. Yeah. I sense that if this was happening in American cities and this doesn't speak well to us, I suppose, that there would be so much cynicism and paranoia almost. And who are you exploiting and why? And property and, rights. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, you can't yeah. use my image. And and everyone here was so open to it, even when they didn't understand it. Right. They would just ask the question and they would yes. say, what's the point of it? Yes. A character at one point says, what's the point? Of putting your toes on a train. (laughs) And Varda gives such a wonderful, wonderful answer Mm -hmm. to that question that I'm glad he asked the question. Right. Exactly. It starts the dialogue. You mentioned memory. And I think that is important because it's a thread that connects, you know, particularly I think the beaches of Agnes where she directly confronts her aging and quite eloquently, quite beautifully, um, sadly in some ways. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of that here as well. Another one of these quotes that jumps out at you is when she describes what this process has been for her with JR and that she actually says he's helping her fulfill her greatest desire. And this is what she describes as her greatest desire, to meet new faces and photograph them so they don't fall down the hole in my memory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she she's an off-the-cuff poet as well as everything else. And I think that's one little element that does speak to um, this constant awareness of her aging that she doesn't try to hide Mm -hmm. or cover up, but as in everything else in her life that we've seen, explore and and use art to explore it. Yeah. To echo one other thing I said in our Agnes discussion, I commented that Varda's really the rare artist who looks inward but doesn't turn inward. And what I meant was she draws on her own past. She draws on her work, on everything about her personally including her past relationships, but there's no navel-gazing whatsoever with her. She is genuinely the most curious person maybe I've ever encountered. And, of course, I've never met her, but just encountered her through her work. She really does want to know these other people. She doesn't just want to exploit them for their art. And, honestly, there's value in that, too, right? If people are game and you can produce something that— you think is wondrous and that is going to move people and you're not doing anything to hurt the people that you're getting to agree to do this, then go for it. But with Varda and with JR here, there really is a sense of what she says at one point to one of the characters, I want to have an exchange with you. And that's where the art is truly made. There's a trust that in that exchange with other people, the art that will be produced will transfer 
to us. And we will get that sense, as you said, Josh, of, of the feeling that occurred when they had that encounter, that random encounter that still somehow produced something that we are all attracted to or interested in. And the penultimate line of this film, I think, is also really noteworthy. And I won't go into too many details about the context of it, except to say that she's sitting on a park bench, she's talking to JR, and she says, I don't see you very well. And she's referencing there literally the fact that she's losing her eyesight. She has to have these injections, we see that, and things are a little bit blurry for her. She says, I don't see you very well, but I see you. I think that's the Varda mission in a nutshell, right? It's, I just want to truly see these people. And having that exchange that she does with them, the byproduct of that is not only does she see them, but they see themselves. In a, yeah, in a very literal way as, as these projects come about. I also think when you are purposeful about establishing those sorts of relationships, then you get some of these great stories like Janine, the woman who mm-hmm. lives on the block of homes set to be demolished, talking about her father, where they couldn't wait till he came back home from work with, I forget the term she uses, but essentially the baguette he would bring to work. Yeah. What they was hoped left? That there would be a little bit left, and she liked that it was even grimy, grimy from the soot. Yes, because I guess it would remind her of his work, where he'd been, mm-hmm. and you know, you don't get a deep memory detail like that by just asking someone to tell me about what it was like to be in a family of minors. You know, you have to first have that relationship that you're describing, that intentionality, and that genuine curiosity about someone else's experience in order for that to come out. Faces Places is currently out in limited release. If you get a chance to see it, whether you know a lot about Varda or think you know a lot about Agnes Varda or not, we would encourage it. Yeah, and that's a good point. I don't think you need you to don't. be a Varda expert no. to appreciate this I film. think it's entirely likely that there are many people listening who could watch this film, it's their first Varda film, yes. and fall in love with her and her project as an artist, just as much as we do. If somehow that's not the case and you disagree with our thoughts on this movie, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. If you do want to hear much more about Agnes Varda, visit the marathons page at filmspotting.net. Actually, you can go directly to filmspotting.net slash Varda. You can hear the conversations from our six movie Varda Marathon and our awards where we shared our best picture, best performance, and a few other categories. They've been battling for weeks now, Adam. We pitted the ensemble cast of Murder on the Orient Express against the cast of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Then some quick thoughts on a couple more recent releases. Stay with us. So you want to dig to be good Yeah, you thought it would be okay A Death Star in blue My night I thought in the incinerator to be cool I you thought that it would be alright in the morning a death star in why Run away. This. It's from my dad. It's where I found the bookmark. Why did my father have this book? A clip from the trailer there for Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck. And if you listened to last week's episode of Film Spotting and you're thinking, didn't they play pretty much the same clip last week to tease their review? Well, You're right. It turns out there are not a lot of scenes available featuring audio-friendly dialogue for this movie, and that's maybe no real surprise since the movie's two protagonists are both deaf. It's a film based on Brian Selznick's 2011 book, which is not quite a graphic novel, as you touched on last week, Josh, but it is a novel told with pictures. Selznick, also known for the invention of Hugo Cabret, which was adapted by Scorsese into Hugo. Wonderstruck has two separate timelines. One starts in Minnesota in the 70s. A boy whose mother has just passed away goes in search of the father he never met. And then the second timeline takes place in New York City in the 1920s. We follow a girl who longs to connect with her estranged mother. You've got Julianne Moore, who 
Todd Haynes has mined for wonderful performances in the past over multiple films. She appears in both sections of the movie. And then you've got maybe the best actress of her generation right now, Michelle Williams, in the mix as well. This is, though, first and foremost, a story about those two kids. And Josh, you took your two kids to see this movie over the weekend. Are you recommending Wonderstruck? I am recommending it. More than that, I am charging all parents of children as this movie is supposed to open wider this weekend to take your kids and see this. Not because Are you trying to guilt us? Necessar- no. Are you trying no. to shame us? No. You know what this is for? This is for the parents who, and I see this on Letterboxd or on Twitter, they they say, well, got to drag the son, the daughter. <laughs> the emoji movie. Whatever it is. Okay. I get it. But you know what you have to do then? You have to go see a movie like this because- I really liked it. I don't think it'll be on my top 10 list. Um, I like other Haynes films better, even though this is very much a Todd Haynes film. I mean, in some ways, you talked about the different timelines and the different format he uses. I'll mention it's as experimental as I'm not there in some ways. Uh, the lack of dialogue alone. There are a lot of sequences here that are purely silent. So it deserves your attendance because it's a very good Todd Haynes movie, but really it deserves your attendance and your family's attendance so that you don't just get the emoji movie so that producers and studios realize there is a market for these types of films too, which are not as frantic, which are quieter, which respect your kid's intelligence. In other words, don't spoon feed the plot and the themes and everything to them, but make them work a little bit. And I'll put the caveat out there. Your kids might not like it. You know, they might not come out on as much of a high, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, They've experienced it, okay? They've seen something different, and they know that movies, even movies with stories aimed at them, can look differently. So I really do encourage people to see it. I did think it's wonderful. My younger daughter liked it as much as I did. The older daughter, maybe not so much. Um, Everyone in the family has read the book, so that did help because this is a bit of a convoluted storyline. You might want to read the book or have your kids read the book first to help you out with that. Uh, But really the wonder of it for me was the craftsmanship. These sequences set in the 20s, again, the girl is deaf. It's a silent film. Haynes has made a completely silent film with, this was wonderful, so delightful, the sort of audio effects or musical punctuations that we're used to from seeing silent films. And there's just something... So I can't say nostalgic because obviously I didn't experience silent films when they were first out. But there is something wonderfully old-timey, I guess, about that and the way he pulls that off. And then there are other Haynes touches in these 70 sequences where the boy is also deaf and he gets out of the bus station in New York City. And it's very disorienting, his experience of gritty 70s New York. Haynes throws some disco on the soundtrack, and uh, it very much bears his signature touch there. And then these two character storylines meet, and eventually a lot is told. Now, here's where the creativity of adaptation comes into play via miniature – they're models, I guess. It's hard to describe. They're stop motion, but they don't – fully move. The characters' faces are on figures, but the characters' faces are like in portrait frames. So you see, for example, Michelle Williams' face in a miniature portrait frame Mm -hmm. on a paper cutout sort of figure that tells stories from the past that bring these two characters together. So I hope I haven't lost you there. But the point is that in terms of the craftsmanship, it's really something wonderful that's completely different from what the book does, completely different from what I've seen in other films, um, and marks this as another form of experimentation from Haynes. So I do really think this is a strong film, whether you consider it a children's film or not, and hope people give it a shot, Hmm. even, you know, if you're kids aren't used to seeing something like this. So I think you just answered it, but you're saying that that experimentation and the craftsmanship, like with the Michelle Williams sequence you were talking about, isn't something that's lifted from the book? That's a Haynes visualization? Yeah, yeah. So the book consists of these hand-drawn pages, maybe 10 to 12 in a row, and prose sections, long prose sections as well. So that alone is, you know, a level of complication And Haynes is brave enough to double up on that with some of the creativity on display here. So you should have a chance to see it this weekend. It is expected to expand wide. And if you have thoughts on the movie, we'd love to hear them. Feedback at filmspotting.net. I like to joke here on the show, Josh, that you do all the critical heavy lifting, but 
this week you just literally did all the lifting for this show as I only managed to see the Varda. You made it to Wonderstruck as well, and you made it to the Lanthimos film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. We're going to get your thoughts on that in a minute. But first, we thought we'd have a little diversion. We wanted to give everyone another chance to experience Massacre Theater in case you missed last week's performance. We reviewed Thor Ragnarok, and we shared our top five superhero costumes. You'll hear the tie-in in this brief clip. You're giving this to me? Well, yeah, you're my hero. Here. Here, take the car. Thanks, Thor. You're welcome. I probably should have watched that scene again. I could have had a <laughs> lot more fun with it had I remembered or bothered to look up the actor I was portraying. Oh, I'm going to have to do that. I didn't bother to do it either. Well, for your character or for mine, because yours is someone I don't think anyone has really heard of. Mine is a pretty prominent film actor. He went on to do great things. Yes. Oh, man. You didn't know I that? I can't wait till we're done. Oh, no. and I, I would not known, have detected that from his performance there or your rendition. He's I'm known sorry. for going for it. Oh. I'll say that. He could have gone for it a little more. I that think scene. he could have. Yeah. I mean, I did try to embody the utter blandness that you thought came through, but I don't think that would otherwise describe any of his other performances. And if any of that's giving you a clue, you can. Tell us what film we just massacred. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, November 13th. If you are chosen as the winner, you'll get your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. But actually, Josh, if they don't want a t-shirt, maybe they want their very own Film Spotting coffee mug or they want a notebook. Guess what? They can do that. Can We've they really? added more items oh, man. to the Film Spotting shop. Filmspotting.net. It's not because we're out of t-shirts already, no? is it? No. We still have t-shirts. But... We have been seeing the pictures on social media. We love that everyone is enjoying the new merch. And there is a sale coming. Those T-shirts will be only $14. That's November 13th through the 17th. So mark that on your calendars if you are looking to pick up some merch. I actually am a customer, Josh. I decided to buy one of those film spotting notebooks. Did That's going to really? be my new note taking book where Which the pages will be blank because I'm terrible at taking notes while yeah, I watch a film. You'll continually ask me for a pen. And I will always ask you for a pen. But dang it, that film spotting logo will look awesome yes. on the cover of that notebook. Uh, hey, to jump back to Massacre Theater yes. briefly. Yeah, that actor goes big. Goes well, big. That's really him. <laughs> that's crazy. Okay, I another clue it. relating to the cast. We can say that Sam and I were discussing, both had huge crushes on the yeah, actress who is in the scene. The actress. Does not speak during that scene, but is in the scene. Well, is the title character of sorts with the movie. Yes. Yes? Yes. She is responsible for the activity referenced in the title. Referenced in the title of the movie. And yes, I think most boys our age probably went through a phase where we had a little bit of a crush on this actress. So we've now given you way more than you probably deserve to know about this gem of a movie. Let's get to a couple, well, I suppose, corrections here, Josh. And you know, Chris Klemek over the years, he was such a good guest on the show, Superhero Costumes, shared his favorite superhero costume, which was Superman from Man of Steel, which was a great choice, well-articulated. But, you know, Chris does love being a scold mm -hmm. from time to time. And he called us out on something I didn't hear, frankly. I think you just talk so fast. I didn't even catch the fact that you said that the person responsible for creating the character who was your number five, the Rocketeer, was the same person as one of our favorite film critics. And <laughs> regular guest, used to be a regular guest. We hope to have her back on the show at some point here soon, Dana Stevens. Yes. Well, you know, this is the problem with inviting Chris to be part of the show. Then he's going to listen to it really closely I know. and catch this. I, I did say that Dana Stevens created the Rocketeer. No, it's <laughs> Dave. It's Dave. Dave Stevens. And I think either I was thinking of Dana, I might have actually been listening to Slate Culture Gab Fest that go. same day I was researching mm. this. Had Dana Possibly on the brain. Possibly that's what was happening. Possibly I've not adjusted to my new reading glasses oh. yet. I'd like to see you bust those out. Yeah, I, I didn't bring them tonight. So whatever the case, apologies to Dave Stevens, the creator of The Rocketeer. Well, thank you, Chris, for that correction. Now, how about this one? Let's have some fun with this one, Josh, which I don't know if you even saw it. But we had a little bit of fun with the pronunciation of Thor Ragnarok. We had a listener, Andreas, in Denmark tell us how to properly pronounce it. And here we have Alexander 
Waldemar from Algard, Norway, where he says, in parentheses, where the Nordic gods live. You don't put that in parentheses. I mean, you, you go bold. It, it deserves that. to stand on its own. But speaking of bold, he's got some choice words for Andreas. Hi, I'm listening to episode 654 and just heard a Danish man trying to teach you how to pronounce Ragnarok. Don't listen to the filthy Danish. <laughs> pronounce the G. Be proud of it. All you have to do is work on your rolling R and you're good. Okay. All right. Ragnarok. Oh, that's, that's okay. well done. So I'm, I'm with Alexander for a couple of reasons. First of all. You think all Danes are filthy. Yes. I'm also Norwegian. Yes. I met Alex in London. Did you really? He was at the meetup. He came from Algard, Norway? No, I or think he was in London at the from. time. Yeah. Just I don't know if he's returned today. to Algard where the Nordic gods live. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alexander. And if we have done anything to ignite a battle, a border battle, I'm all for it. I think they're, they're across the sea, right? We got to at least get that right. I know nothing yeah. I know nothing about geography. No border. You're telling me they don't they don't share anything? They share some waterfront property. What's all on what you can and cannot say on a billboard? I assume you can't say nothing defamatory and you can't say f that right? Or anus? I think I'll be all right then. Well, let's get to our polls and see if we can not add any more bleeps to this episode. Francis McDormand in the trailer for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Writer-director Martin McDonough there. A couple weeks back, we offered up this deathmatch for your entertainment. Members of only one of these all-star ensembles will go on to act another day. Will it be from Three Billboards, Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, Peter Dinklage, John Hawks, and Lucas Hedges, or the crew... From the Orient Express, Dame Judi Dench, Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, Kenneth Branagh, Derek Jacoby, not Jacoby, Josh, as I somehow let you get away with saying. we got to add that to the pronunciation guide. Yikes. Daisy Ridley, Leslie Odom Jr., and in parentheses, still, again, Johnny Depp. Josh, how did it come out? A drubbing. Frances McDormand, her potty mouth, and the rest of the gang won with 80% of the vote. It wasn't even close. No. Poor Penelope Cruz. What am I going to do? <laughs> She's gone. No. Only 20. And who called this one exactly? Yeah, you that did was say 80-20. I said 80-20. And that's how it came out. And I didn't even Congratulations. Thank you. Michael Loker in San Leandro, California, one of our regular poll commenters, says, Sorry, guys, but this one should be a no-brainer. They're both talented ensembles, but as wicked cool as the Billboard's bunch is, if we're going to pick acting teams to repopulate a post-deathmatch future, I'm going to need more variety than three 40-something white dudes and a solitary Caucasian woman. Unless we're going to film nothing but four-character Sam Shepard adaptations, I have no problem with this, by the way, a stately British senior, a mid-career Spaniard, a stone-jawed Shakespearean, a multi-talented African-American, a radiant Jedi, maybe, and the guy who played the private detective in Tusk might come in handy, no. Chris had something to say to Michael Loker. Yes. Hey, Michael Loker, I read the question as being a choice between the two ensembles. Not that the chosen group would be the only actors left in the entire world. The losers would simply not act again. But that does not mean that actors not in the two options are somehow sent back to working in coffee shops or warehouses. So given that reading, has to be billboards. <laughs> Maybe the first time ever in the history of the show, we have a dialogue, a back and forth, another battle within our poll comments. Michael Loker says, hey, Chris, I definitely distorted the deathmatch implications. You're right. Even though it's not spelled out, these deathmatches carry that connotation sometimes, though. We're narrowing the future a little towards X and culling away Y. A simple which ensemble do you prefer poll wouldn't suggest that, but these are more fun. And that's what we're going for here. Fun. Absolutely. Pat O'Shea chimed in from Oxford, UK. Massive U.S. bias in the voting here. We can't imagine life without our national treasure, Dame Judy. How dare you, as Adam would say. I say how dare you to leaving out Kenneth Branagh. How do you just include Dame Judy and don't go with Kenneth Branagh, who one day will be Sir Kenneth Branagh? Well, for now, she outranks him, so... That's true. Don't get hasty. Kaya in London says, have to go with three billboards. The others deserve to go just for making Orient Express. I've seen enough so-called British heritage films, take that, Pat O'Shea, to put me off for life. Hopefully the loss of Dench and Branagh will ensure no more colonial classics. We've already got their best work, so let's look forward and not back. Though, <laughs> hoping Jacoby will still be allowed on the stage, if not screen. So harsh. Let's put here, him out here. to pasture, huh? Yep. Zach from Melbourne said, as much as it pains me to live in a world with no more Willem Dafoe or any more potential crew Elmadovar team-ups, 
The Murder on the Orient Express crew are going to have to take one for cinephiles everywhere if it means finally putting an end to Johnny Depp once and for all. This is taking a turn for the worse. People are just using this poll as an opportunity to put down actors they're sick of. No it's problem. Not how we intended I got it. no problem with that. Felix Korch in Germany. You could write a lot about this, but let's make this simple. Would you really want to live in a world where Woody Harrelson no longer acts? Can you name a movie Harrelson is in? He does not improve. No? Didn't think so. We're done here. I said good day, sir. Felix, I say I war for the planet of the apes. He doesn't make that he's, better? Uh, yeah. No, no. He's not terrible, but I wouldn't say he's Woody a Woody Harrelson's incapable of his, being terrible. His plus, his plus minus, is that... Uh, that's like an NBA term, I think. That I still don't know it what it means. It started as a hockey term. Re- did it really? And it became okay. an NBA term. You can explain it to me after I will. the show, but I'm going to say that Woody Harrelson's plus minus minutes in War for the Planet of the Apes, not favorable. Okay. Our final comment here. You know him, you love him, regular commenter here. Jeff Milo, Ferndale, Michigan. We should just call it Film Spotting Michigan. He's such a regular. Gut reaction, first instinct, Hawks. McNorman, Dinklage, Harrelson. And one of my favorite actors, bar none, Rockwell, sure, of course, duh. But wait, the winner should be Orient Express. First, for diversity's sake, more women in the cast. Second, how amazing are those actors? Cruz, Dench, Pfeiffer. But the sick, twisted brilliance of death matches makes me consider the stakes. I love, love, and have for a long time loved the entire cast of billboards. So I'm sated. I'm set. We can retire their jerseys. Orient Express has Leslie Odom Jr. and Daisy Ridley. Both are 15 to 20 years younger than most of Billboard's cast and thus have this bright career of great potential ahead of them. So let's give them that chance to prove themselves. Which will be a better film overall? Well, that's a no-brainer. But my answer to your deathmatch, Orient Express. A very ageist answer. A youth movement, I think you'd call (laughs) it. A youth movement. I like it. And I do think he points out something that probably came into play, the fact that not many people are looking forward to Orient no. Express. While Three Billboards, I saw the trailer for the first time before, I think it might have been Sacred Deer. Looks great. Does it? So great. Yeah, yeah I haven't watched wait. it yet, but I can't wait to see it. I've enjoyed all of McDonough's films. He was a guest here on the show to talk about Seven Psychopaths. I have to admit, though, there is a part of me that does really want to see Orient Express. I think it's because I don't know the mystery. I've never read the Agatha Christie source material. I didn't have it spoiled for me mm-hmm. by my wife, like some of mm-hmm. us here in the studio. And occasionally I just want that kind of mindless detective story or that mystery that's just going to be entertaining. I hope it's going to be entertaining, but it probably won't be. The other thing against it, I just drove past a billboard on the way here. Yeah. They've got them all arrayed like there's some sort of old people justice league, which I don't <laughs> quite get that sales pitch. Okay. So No, I don't don't either. And our listeners apparently aren't getting that sales pitch either. That brings us to our new poll question. Looking ahead a couple of weeks to James Franco's The Disaster Artist. It opens in limited release on December 1st. We are hoping to talk about it on our December 8th show. It's James Franco's adaptation of a 2013 book about the infamously but entertainingly bad cult film The Room, which came out back in 2003. Even if you're not really into these kind of movie experiences, the so bad, they're good variety, and I would count myself as one of those people, it's likely you're at least vaguely familiar with The Room, or are you? We have a question here that's gauging your interest, gauging your feelings to The Room overall, and in the process, we're going to find out whether or not most of you have even ever seen the movie. Our question is, how do you feel about Tommy Wiseau's The Room? We have four answers. They are all Quotes taken directly from that magnificent screenplay. Now, bear in mind as I read these, I haven't seen The Room. You haven't. So, no. So, I I can't give a Massacre Theater performance no, drawing from the text here, but I'm going to do my best. Here okay. are your four options. How do you feel about Tommy Wiseau's The Room? It excites me so much. You didn't get it, did you? I'm fixing the apartment for Johnny's birthday, but I'm really not into it. Why, Johnny? Why? Johnny? Why? Why? No, not as entertaining, your rendition of any of those lines. I think that's a compliment. It is a compliment (laughs) to the room, I think, actually, Josh. What? So if you follow those answers, and of course they will be over at filmspotting.net, the first one, it excites me so much. You're basically saying, yes, I've seen the room and I'm a fan, whether you're on the side of the spectrum that is, I ironically appreciate it or you somehow unironically appreciate it. Love it. I don't know if that's actually possible, but if you fall in there, 
that's your choice. You didn't get it, did you? Means obviously that you've seen it, but you just aren't on board with this kind of fun. I'm fixing the apartment for Johnny's birthday, but I'm really not into it. You are aware of it. You're a little bit curious, but you probably aren't going to break down and see it. And then why, Johnny, why, Johnny, why, why? You don't want to hear anything about this movie. You don't care at all. You're never going to care and you're never going to see it. So, Josh, you obviously fall into one of those latter two options. So does does one work where I am really excited about it, even if I haven't seen it? I mean, which one of those is it? So do we have to add other? I I don't know. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't weigh in on the poll (laughs) earlier, but I I might need another because I've always wanted to see The Room. It's not something where I've purposefully avoided. So I'm excited that this gives me an opportunity. Then Franco, I mean, I'm open to his weirdness, you know? Yeah. It's going to be hit or miss, but give me more weird Franco. That's fine. And this is another one, the trailer I saw, that looks like it could be not only hilarious, Mm -hmm. but it might be one of these, you know, Hollywood commentary movies that is kind of compelling. So I'm oddly excited about the chance to catch up with the room. Okay. Well, I think I'm voting it excites me so much because I have seen it and I find it fascinating enough that I'm really excited to see The Disaster Artist and hopefully talk about both movies on the show, though The Room has been talked about on film spotting maybe 2008 or 2009, pre-Josh Larson joining the show. It was one of our After Hours reviews, actually a listener's choice selection. I was so good at predicting the results of our last poll that I'm going to weigh in with a prediction here as well, Josh, and that prediction is next week here on the show, we will be rephrasing this question or apologizing for the (laughs) phrasing of this one. I'll be admitting that Sam was right all along and we should have just asked, have you seen The Room? Because that's really what Sam was most curious about. Have you seen it? Yes or no? And if no, what's your level of interest in it? And I just had to complicate it as I often do. So get ready for that on next week's show. Can't wait. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback in the poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We don't have to worry about nothing Cause we got the fire And we're burning one hell of a something They They're gonna see us from outer space Yeah, I'm really sorry outer about Bod It's nothing serious No, it is Like with the stars of the human race Human race Where did you two go? When the The sounds there of The Killing of a Sacred Deer, the latest film from Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos. We have been admirers of his work ever since his movie Dogtooth won our Golden Brick Award way back in 2010. And his most recent film, The Lobster, was among your top 10 favorites of the year, Josh, and in the mix for me as well in that top 15 or 20. Before we sat down to record, we were talking a little bit about the movie, which I haven't had a chance to see yet and really know almost nothing about. I've successfully avoided all trailers and all discussion of the movie online, but you were saying that if you look at all of his previous films, certainly applies to The Lobster, Alps, the one before that, and then Dogtooth, these are high-concept movies. With one or two sentences at most, you can tell someone what the movies are about and probably pique their interest because they are, let's say, off the wall. Does The Killing of a Sacred Deer, it certainly has an off-the-wall title. Does it have a similarly crazy concept at its core? Eventually. Okay. uh, It does get to one, but a distinction from his last three films, certainly, which are the only three that I've seen and do have high concepts, the distinction is we don't really fully get a grasp of what that is till about an hour in. And that's maybe one of the reasons I'm pretty mixed on The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I'm still wrestling with this movie, and there are a variety of reasons I'm holding it at bay. One of them, to be quite honest, is because, you know, all of his films are disturbing, but this one was really rough for me. And where it ended up uh, really hit me in a different way that I found troublesome and Full confession, maybe that means that Lanthimos is doing what he wanted to do and he's managed to provoke me in a way, a deeper way than he had before. All of his films I found provocative. I think that's the kind of 
filmmaker that he is, and maybe this is on me, that he's gone to a place that I just can't handle. Um, But I think one of the reservations, and I'll give you a little bit of a plot synopsis for your sake and for listeners who haven't seen it yet, for their sakes, I'll, I'll keep it brief. But basically, Colin Farrell is back as a heart surgeon who's the head of this close family, but they're really tightly wound. You can tell his wife is played by Nicole Kidman. She's an ophthalmologist, and they have an older daughter and a younger son. And they're very reserved, as you can imagine, Lanthimos characters to the point it's a placid family, but they're almost comatose in how they talk to each other. So you know something is off here. You get the sense that it'll take one little element to push them over the edge. And that's what happens when another character comes into play. Uh, Martin, played by Barry Cogan, you'll recognize him immediately as the young kid on the boat in Dunkirk, gave a great performance here. Mm -hmm. He's the life force of this film. Eerie, unsettling as this teen son of Stephen the Doctor's former patient. So he has this odd mentor relationship with this kid, brings him into his home, and things go awry from there. That's all I'll say at this point. Uh, Where they go is really dark. And one thing I'm wrestling with is what is the meaning behind that malice. So, for example, the lobster I saw as this, you know, in some ways equally dark, certainly violent, disturbing, skewering of the way we vitalized marriage. Okay, that's one of the things that was being targeted there. I think in the case of Dogtooth, you could say authoritarianism at large was the subject. I'm still wrestling with what is the killing of a sacred deer skewering? What does Hmm. it have on its mind? And maybe for some people, you could say, well, nothing It's to disturb you, It's just to disturb you, and that should be good enough. And I think that's where you and I differ sometimes on provocative films. So that could well be the case here. But one of the things that also held me at bay is I didn't find it to be quite as funny as certainly as The Lobster, which, as I was saying, you know, I giggled throughout and felt bad about. Here, the humor is very slight. Farrell is giving a different performance. He's more just flat, flat, whereas in The Lobster, he was wryly flat. Um, And Kidman is maybe too good of a match with Lanthimos' clipped performance style, so she doesn't register quite as strongly as perhaps another actor might have. But really, for that first hour, there's not a lot of that dark humor. And then once we discover this, it's not really a twist, but a revelation, um, something the characters have to face and reckon with. He puts the pedal down and things become really dark. Yes, funnier in a way but also in a way that did really leave me with a a bitter taste in my mouth, but not that intellectual chaser, Mm -hmm. I guess, that his other films have given me. So certainly for fans of Lanthimos, The Killing of a Sacred Deer is something you don't want to miss. It's working in a very similar register to some of these other films that we've both greatly appreciated. So give it a shot, and I can't wait to hear some of the spirited defenses yeah. of this movie to pick up on maybe what I'm not connecting with. So if you agree with Josh, or maybe especially if you don't and you have very passionate feelings for this movie, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting.net is where you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives while you're there. We hope you'll vote in our current film spotting poll asking you about Tommy Wiseau's infamous The Room. If you haven't already, please check out the film spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Also at filmspotting.net, the all new film spotting merch store. More information at filmspotting.net slash shop. You too could have a film spotting notebook, just like the one Adam (laughs) doesn't fill out. But we'll bring to every screening. Out in wide release this weekend, Daddy's Home 2, starring Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg and Murder on the Orient Express. In limited release, I can't wait to see this one, 7852, a 90-minute documentary about Psycho's 45-second shower scene, 78 setups, 52 cuts in those 45 seconds. Last Flag Flying, this is the latest from director Richard Linklater. The Square, the Palme d'Or winning film from Sweden's Ruben Oslin, who made The Great Force Majeure. It stars Elizabeth Moss and Lady Bird, the so far rapturously reviewed Greta Gerwig debut as a director. It stars Laurie Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan. Next week on the show, we're going to see if we will add to the rapturous chorus for Lady Bird, and we might just, at least one of us, we'll see, fit in 
a couple minutes on Justice League. Our top five tying in with Greta Gerwig's debut is going to be directing debuts by women. We hope you'll share some of your thoughts, some of those movies that we shouldn't overlook. Again, our email, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can send us an MP3 file if you prefer to do it by voice or call 312-264-0744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts so that we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week is by Destroyer. It comes from the new album, Ken. More information is at destroyer.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. We skipped talking about Halloween last week. We didn't do hot mics because... It was such a late night. So how did it go? Talking about Halloween the movie or No. That's a sacred cow down the road. I don't want to hear you we rip on do, John no, Carpenter. I genuinely want to give it a better shot. I, I know you have the best of intentions. It's the results <laughs> I'm worried about. Can't bear the possibility no. that it really doesn't no. hold up. How about how about the uh, costumes? How did the kids do? Man, we're phasing out of it. Makes me so sad. We're oh, man. phasing out. You I know you've got little ones yet. Yeah, yeah, I like dressing up, and and so you can enjoy this for a few more years. Um, yeah, teenager had no plans to do it, but then musical rehearsal got done early, so a couple of friends stopped by. They threw together some costumes and went out. So that was kind of fun, but we weren't really a part of that, you know. Yeah, and um, yeah, the sixth grader is still into it, so she had a few friends over. And but did she dress up? Um, yes, they all dressed up. She was an illuminated. Oh, wait, I got to use the right term. Biofluorescent is that it? Yeah, bioluminescent, bioluminescent yes. jellyfish. Okay. So umbrella, a picture an umbrella with all these like tendrils, and then also blue glowing lights somehow. Now that's creative. Up. It now, was pretty awesome. Once it started getting dark, it was hmm. amazing. You'll like this. One friend was a Hamilton character. Okay. And um, which one? The which Hamilton character? Yeah. She was Eliza, okay. I believe. Good. Yeah. Good. So that. So yeah, they my had kids fun. been there, done I mean, that last yep. year. Oh yeah, there were there were. Uh, her little brother was Alexander Hamilton. Um, he wasn't with us though. So yeah, that it was fun to go around with them. But again, like I had the dog, and I'm not really part of it. You know, like right. they're starting. It's the it's that's what happens. It's starting to be their own thing. <laughs> But I miss the days yeah. of walking up with them, mm-hmm. holding their hand, getting candy, me in costume. That would just be embarrassing now, right? It would be. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't partake this year. I did take the kids out. Okay. Though by the time I got home, only Sophie and Connor actually wanted to go back out. They'd already done it after school in the oh, neighborhood okay. where school is. So they'd yeah. been out and collected tons of candy and didn't really need to go back out. But they why not? They humored me basically oh, okay. and filled up their bags. A little bit more. So You were like, Dad needs some candy. Let's go. I, I did need the candy. <laughs> I, I'm very familiar with the bioluminescence. There's only a few places in the world where that phenomenon occurs. Oh. And one of them is a bay in Puerto Rico where I went last summer. That's right. That's where we you went. experienced That's it. That's where we went out canoeing. That was the canoeing trip, <laughs> The canoeing <right>? trip. <laughs> where magical. I really showed my skills. The canoeing trip. I survived it, and and we <laughs> did get to experience the bioluminescence. But yeah, this year, Sophie was a flapper. Nice. She looked great. She was cold. That's like a, I like that's a good traditional one. Like I feel like yeah. when we were kids, there were you flappers. saw a fair, you just grab some stuff out of, of your mom's closet that's and right. you were a flapper. Yes. So she did that. Me personally. And then <laughs> I love that image. Connor was the Grim Reaper. Oh man. So Sarah did a really good job. The black outfit and the the white face and he, he had like, he had the scythe. Seems like a handmade. happier kid than that. <laughs> I know. I don't know why he wanted Connor. to be death, but he did. Quinn was a character I've never heard of from a cartoon I've never heard of. Oh, so not Pokemon. Not Pokemon Because when it comes time. to Pokemon, I'm lost. No, the character's name is Toffee. Okay. And Toffee is an alligator who wears a suit. 
Don't know what it is, but I love it. <laughs> so Quinn looked really good as an alligator wearing a suit. He had you, know what, ties you know on. what Quinn was? Quinn was a manimal. <laughs> he was. You're right. He was literally. <laughs> well, that's not Your true. Your number one manimal. No. I mean, I'm not, I'm not good at this science stuff, but a man a reptile? Reptiles are animals, right? They're not. No? We should stop. <laughs> but the best one. And I did tweet about this a few weeks ago, and I don't know if you saw it, but it really happened. I wasn't joking. Holden, 15, otherwise probably wouldn't really care about Halloween, but he did have to dress up to go to school. Holden was Martin Luther. Reformation Day. The Reformation. And, and close to Holden's heart, I'm sure. I mean, this is the kid who has been an unabashed atheist since he was about six years old, but finds Martin Luther and the whole Protestant Reformation and the 500th anniversary fascinating. I'm sure. So he went as Martin Luther, which of course meant he looked somewhat like a 16th century monk or 17th, <laughs> no, whatever. Yeah, 16th that century monk. is fantastic. Yeah, he, he pulled it off. He had the whole outfit on and he had a wig and he had the hat and I don't know where Sarah found that stuff, but. Perhaps only topped by Adeline's history teacher, who also went as Martin Luther, but actually did the shaved monk hairdo. What? Like shaved his hair. What? I'm not kidding you. It was amazing. That's insane. It's commitment. Holden did not go that far. Two other quick notes. I mentioned that I was really into Mindhunter on mm-hmm. Netflix. Have you started it yet? No, man. Why not? I'm, because I'm finishing Veep while I'm also trying to- You're watching movies to prepare in, for this show. Fit in Stranger Things. Yeah, and doing my job. Right. Thank you very much. Well, it's brilliant. I finished it. It just gets better and better. And then, speaking of Stranger Things, we got done watching Mindhunter. Sarah and I finally found a Netflix show we could watch together. It's always good. It is good. And so then you have that void when you finish one. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like, well, what's going to be the next show? And it was the weekend that we had just finished Mindhunter, like on Saturday night. And this is Sunday where we're looking for a new show. And this is Stranger Things 2 weekend. So we thought, why not? Let's go back. Let's actually get caught up and let's jump on where this is going. Let's jump on the Stranger Things bandwagon here. And and watch already. Let's watch episode one of season one. And we did that on Sunday night. And that was two weeks ago. We haven't gotten back to it. Part of it is being really busy. Mm -hmm. Part of it is it didn't it didn't captivate me the way Mindhunter did, where it was one of those Netflix shows where as soon as I watched the first episode, I was ready for the next one to start okay. and wanted to binge watch it. I'm sure I'll get there with Stranger Things. I liked it. I'm curious, but it mm-hmm. wasn't like I felt that compulsion. And maybe it was partly because I had just finished Mindhunter and then I was jumping too soon into something else. But I want to see where it goes. All the hype has to, has to be for something, right? Um, you didn't love it as much as most yeah, people did. Yeah, I don't think you're going to become obsessed with it. I didn't – I'm obsessed with the opening credit sequence. That alone. It's I great. I could keep watching, right? That's fantastic. It's a homage mm-hmm. slash blatant ripoff. Right. And I think that's – that might be the limitation for you too is just having you know a knowledge of where all of these references are coming from enjoyable to experience. There's a nostalgic value for sure, but mm-hmm. maybe what does it add up to that's that's new? Um, I think maybe that's the ceiling of it for mm-hmm. me, but I'm I'm still into it enough. Like are you watching season two? Yeah, we definitely want to. We're, okay. we're both into it. But you it. haven't started so, it yet. No, we, we're kind of like in the middle of this Veep thing and, and pretty much addicted. So it's kind of like, okay, do we put that on pause? Watch this while everybody's watching it. How much more it? of Veep do you have? I think we got, two, how many seasons are there? Six? Six or seven. Yeah, I think we're about halfway through. So we'll see. Okay. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.